Hello, and welcome to this season's final episode of Museums at the Mic, the podcast of the Alberta Museums Association. My name is Leslie Dolman, and I'm the Operations Coordinator for the AMA. I'm recording this episode in Edmonton, Alberta, which is on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional meeting ground and home for many Indigenous people, including the Cree, Salto, Nitsitapi Blackfoot, Métis, and Nakota Sioux peoples. This is our final episode of Season 2 of Museums at the Mic, and before we begin, I'd like to take a moment to reflect upon this season and the AMA's 50th anniversary conference series. This year, the Museums at the Mic podcast was released to take you behind the scenes in our planning, share sneak peeks of some of our conference content, and showcase examples of the work the AMA, our members, and the museum and heritage sector have been doing over the past 50 years. We were pleased to have shared insights from our conference series program committee, clips from keynote interviews, a roundtable with former executive directors of the AMA, and delightful conversations with AMA members and heritage professionals from around the world. We thoroughly enjoyed learning about the programming, exhibits, projects, and innovative practices underway in the museum community, as well as the opportunity to share these experiences with you over the year. With our 50th anniversary year and season two of Museums at the Mic coming to a close, we're looking forward to the future conversations and connections that the AMA and Alberta's museums will continue to make. The Museums at the Mic podcast has been a way for the team at the AMA to experiment with new ways of sharing the stories and work of museums. As we wrap up the season, we take a look at how others in the museum sector have used podcasts to stay connected with their communities. Coming up first this episode, we revisit our roundtable conversation from March 2021 with the hosts of four museum podcasts. After that, stay tuned for our extended conversation with Bob Weaver and Terry McGuire, the two retired Parks Canada employees we heard from in the previous episode, who have even more stories to share about their work restoring plaques and historic monuments around the province. But first up, let's reflect a little about the platform we're on. Podcasts are ever-increasing in popularity, and museums are finding innovative ways to use this format for collection stories, community issues, behind-the-scenes views of their institutions, and more. Especially in the early days of the COVID-19 pandemic, many museums turned to podcasts as a way of connecting virtually with audiences who could no longer come visit in person. Back in February, we held a roundtable discussion with the hosts of four museum podcasts that vary greatly in style and subject from a wide range of institutions to talk about what they've learned putting their podcasts together. You'll hear Ben Fast, the AMA Learning Program Lead at the time, in conversation with Sean Mobley, host of The Flight Deck from the Museum of Flight in Seattle, Alison Graham, host of Complex Stories from Fort Calgary National Historic Site, Matthew Levitt, host of Intangible Alberta from the Royal Alberta Museum and Strathcona County Museum and Archives, and Alex McLean and Jamie Oman, co-hosts of Hilltop History out of Fort Henry in Ontario. Our thanks to Sean, Allison, Matthew, Alex, and Jamie for talking with Ben earlier this year. Obviously, the last 11 months has been very difficult on museums and has had a significant impact on their operations, uh, as most of you have mentioned, the ability to even do these podcasts. Going back to you, Sean, for this one, the Museum of Flight is in Seattle, which was one of the American cities hit earliest and hit very hard by the pandemic, uh, very unfortunately. How did your museum closing impact how you recorded the podcast? And how did that role of the podcast change? Because I remember listening and starting to hear funding requests, for example, sort of changing the way that you approach the podcast. Can you talk about that? Yeah, the actual production of the podcast changed in some ways like i said i've actually been doing this as a hobby for a while so i was perhaps fortunate that i had a lot of equipment at home 
ready to go and and our AV services department at the museum had a kit that I could take with a few extra things so in terms of the actual production pipeline um, I was very fortunate in that I was able to pretty easily lift what was being done at the museum to working at home but a lot of things changed uh, surrounding that for example recording interviews was not the same couldn't sit down with somebody in the little recording closet that I have tucked away in the basement and uh, so getting people comfortable with new ways of doing things getting myself comfortable I had done a few phone interviews and online interviews but there, there's the balance of wanting to do what is simple for the interviewer interviewee so just get on the phone but also knowing that that's not the best audio quality and even recording over zoom there are ways to do it, like what we're doing for this call, having people record locally and things like that, that can enhance the audio, but trying to figure out if that's really the best thing to try to get someone to do on the other end uh, when they're already doing you the favor of, of talking with you in this way. And, and, and the other part, as you mentioned, was, was deciding how to prioritize. We tried to stick to every other week as our release schedule, uh, and we'd kind of kept... Not that we weren't obviously wanting to make appeals to donors, but they were much more PBS style, or, or I guess CBC might be the <laughs> Canadian equivalent, where you do an appeal at the front, very subtle, like, you know, this is made possible by our donors, and then that's it. But as it became more apparent that this was going to be a, a tough time, and as research was showing that the public loves museums and thinks that museums should stick around through COVID, but don't think that they're a priority for giving which is understandable when you have people who are starving and experiencing homelessness, that's where you'd want your money to go. Um, we wanted to use every tool at our disposal to make a case for continuing the work that we're doing. And because of, for us, we, we have a global reach. We, we've had the opportunity to work in other countries and I have more listeners in the UK, interestingly, than Canada, mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, that we can make that kind of global appeal and and see what happens. And for me, what drives it is when someone does give to the podcast, I get a chance to read their story a little bit and what connects them to the what resonated with them about my work, which is very uh, it's a good ego boost and it's a good it's a good feeling when you get to see something that you do that you release out into the world, and you see statistics and you're like, well, I I see people are listening. I hope people are listening. I hope they like it. And then you hear from someone and they say, you know, this particular aspect of a story touched me in this way. And so I decided to help support it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And hopefully that support did come through as, uh, as you were hoping. Um, Matt, only one episode of Intangible Alberta was actually released before, or sorry, during the pandemic, one or two, I should say, but you released a few episodes that included material recorded beforehand that included sounds recorded, you know, when people could gather. You've also done some traveling around the province, or at least locally. How did that impact the release of Intangible Alberta and putting those episodes together? Yeah, so I, I actually just had to check here to see when uh, when all of our episodes came out because I couldn't quite recall which ones came out before and after. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so we released three before and then two after. Um, and it's interesting that COVID, I mean, everything now is pre-COVID and post-COVID, right? That's our new uh, temporal signifier. But like you say, we, we had the vast majority of our content recorded before COVID. So it was just a matter of uh, piecing things together. However... Um, for the uh, for the last episode, the summer camp episode, um, 
we did have some extra interviews that we wanted to conduct, which we had originally planned to do in person with people. Uh, but we did have to end up doing it over Zoom. Um, so, I mean, it, it worked out pretty well for us. And I mean, if, I think for a, for a podcaster, um, you're kind of like Sean mentioned, you're, you're always sort of weary about including audio recorded over Zoom and you know it's just not going to be as good. And I mean, I think that sometimes we can be our own worst critics. You know, we just tear apart what we've <laughs> recorded and, and you wish you could have done it better. Um, but again, from a sort of... Uh, whether it's journalistic or anthropological or whatever you want to call it, just acknowledging the reality of, of what you're doing and when you're doing it. Um, I think in, including audio recorded over zoom or over, you know, meets or whatever it is, it, it has a, it, it has that um, audio texture to it now, which I think going forward, people will hear that and they'll understand, oh, okay. So that, you know, in the same way that when we listen to uh, things that were recorded over the phone, um, even pre-internet, you hear it and instantly it provides you with a context. Um, oh, that was recorded over the phone. So it, even if you don't fully understand anything else, it, it does provide that piece of the puzzle. And I think that the, uh, the Zoom sort of audio will do the same kind of thing. Um, and maybe, you know, be, again, it'll be interesting to see if going forward post-COVID, if you just hear a lot more of that. And so that, that sort of audio texture will just become, um, I guess, maybe more and more invisible to people because they're they're used to hearing it. Whereas beforehand, it would have felt a little bit half-baked or you were like, oh, okay, yeah, you had to do it over Zoom, but now it's sort of just expected. In terms of like editing it together, I, honestly, it didn't really make a huge difference to me because um, because of the format of our series, which is largely, largely sort of documentary style where I'm going out and I'm collecting the oral histories and then I'm sort of, tying them together. And so usually I, I collect all of the oral histories first, and then I'll, I'll write the, uh, the sort of narration script that ties it all together afterward. Um, so honestly, it didn't have a huge impact in terms of that process. Um, that being said, we were lucky that we happened to have a large portion of the content already recorded. Um, whereas for season two now, uh, we don't. And so we will have to do the majority of it over Zoom. Uh, but that's, I mean, that's impacting the museum world in general. I mean, we have a long list of oral histories that we want to conduct even just for the collection, but we can't um, because we can't get together with these people. Um, we also have, and we, and we want to do it in a sort of a rich face-to-face -face way, uh, but we can't do that. And I mean, same thing with even collecting objects. We There are objects that we want to collect, but we just can't get together with these people. So it's all kind of on hold right now. Yeah, it's, I guess it, it still remains to be seen. One thing I will mention, um, so the, the team that I work with, uh, Kelsey and Spencer over at the Royal Alberta Museum, um, when, well, shortly after COVID first struck in the spring, we figured that, again, we would, let's strike while iron's hot and let's do like a COVID episode. We'll talk about what is COVID like and how is COVID affecting us. And I think we had like three recording sessions with each other and we were cha changing the format and it was just going to be the three of us talking. But every time, every time we recorded, we sort of had different things to say. And we sort of realized that we didn't even really know what was going on or how to comment on it. Um, so we, we eventually just scrapped that episode because we realized that we're still right in the midst of it. So how can we, how can we report on it? Um, so maybe one day, maybe one day we'll do a COVID episode. But uh, for now, we'll, we'll just keep doing some other things, I think.
And I think that echoes what museums are going through sort of in everything they're doing, be it podcasts, programs, or exhibits. So interesting to hear about those adaptations. Um, Alex, we've already heard from Jamie about the fact that your podcast only came out, only came about during the pandemic. Uh, can you talk about what you're planning for season two as you've adapted to that and what you may have learned to put forward into that season? Yeah, we're, we're, we're kind of spreading uh, or widening our focus, I suppose, whereas season one, it was really about uh, the Fort Henry Guard interpreters and what it's like being an interpreter um, at Fort Henry. Now it's kind of uh, different things. So for example, uh, actually we're, Jamie and I are interviewing each other. <laughs> the kind of nice thing about being co-hosts is, you know, you, the listeners heard all about us in season one or, or didn't hear about us, sorry, heard, heard our voices interviewing guests, but who are JJ and Al. So we're going to have kind of episodes there and what we do at Fort Henry, which will be neat. Uh, and then interviewing a lot of people actually who worked at the fort um, in the past. So the former curator and just like all his stories kind of uh, with, with the Fort Henry collection and his background, which is kind of art artwork and art history with the fort, which is really neat. Um, and then we have another one that I'm really excited about. Um, that's about uh, internment camps. Because uh, Fort Henry was a, an internment camp in the Second World War, and uh, we have kind of a local expert who works at the Royal Military College in Kingston, who has been involved with with our exhibit with that. Who we're going to bring on, uh, and he's just so passionate about about that topic, and he'll really be able to um, speak about a topic that um, not a lot of people know about uh, with the fort, because it's not kind of our main canon, as I call it, the kind of Victorian British military history. Um, so that's kind of where we're at season two and uh, you know we've learned a lot with season one just I think the biggest lesson is it's about the content right it's, it's not necessarily about the the sound effects and the, the super awesome sound quality while that is you know important uh, it's really about the stories and the content that uh, drives your listenership and um, it's why people are listening to the podcast right well, Jamie, maybe you can talk about if you've if you've heard of anything about the podcast from your listeners through season one. Anything you can share about the the reception to the podcast? For sure. Um, well, one of the biggest things that we wanted to make sure we stayed focused on was uh, our audience. So when we talked about this, there was a ton of different conversations and perspectives that came forward. We had a brainstorming group of like ten people that work at the fort, including some marketing. Um, staff and, and, and uh, people of different backgrounds. So, you know, we talked about, is this an educational opportunity for children? Is this a virtual way that schools can learn all about local history and, and Canadian history as well? Um, and then we really, when we narrowed it down, it was people who love history, um, are passionate about Canada, um, previous Fort Henry Guard, uh, like Fort Henry Guard alumni, um, and, and that sort of thing. And we developed kind of a demographic of who we thought would be listening. Um, so then we made sure that each episode, that's who we, that's who we made sure that we were thinking of. And we try to pull that, uh, person into the conversation, just like that, that listener is really the fourth person in the conversation. We have JJ, Al, our interview subject and our listener, making sure that we keep them engaged. Um, so with that expectation, it's funny because we got our feedback from exactly, um, that demographic and those groups of people. 
Um, so we heard a lot of feedback from Fort Henry Guard alumni, uh, tons of Kingstonians, and then we did have listenership elsewhere as well. Like we had small amounts of listenership in Sweden and like other, <laughs> you know, other countries, which was really cool. Um, but, you know, it was very heavily Ontario with some listenership out West and East Canada as well, and then a little bit uh, in the United States and, and other countries as well. So um, the feedback that we got was that um, Al and I seemed to have a lot of fun with it and that people liked that. So I think that's a really important note to anyone who's listening that would be interested in starting a podcast is, you know, have fun with it. Experiment a little. Don't be, don't be afraid to let your creativity fly and have some fun with it. Um, and that uh, the episodes were informative and that also um, episode length was appreciative. You know, our episodes were anywhere between, I think our shortest was 21 minutes and our longest was like 32 minutes or something like that. Um, we were, we didn't want to keep it really strict. It has to be X amount of minutes. However, we wanted to, you know, make it as appealing as possible to our listeners. So we tried to aim for that 30 and under range um, because that tends to be the average commute for people. I personally listen to podcasts on my way to and from work. Um, so um, people tend to, they seem to appreciate the length of the podcast as well. So yeah, just that it was fun. It was uh, a great learning opportunity that there was lots of uh, fun tidbits that even, even people who have been to the fort before um, and are passionate about Kingston and, and local history, they felt like they learned something new, which was great feedback for us as well. Mm -hmm. To bring it back to COVID a little bit here in Alberta, Allison, your approach to complex stories has been to tackle some really big topics and some very personal stories for you and for your guests. How is addressing and sharing those important major themes of reconciliation in particular on the podcast or in the fort's day-to-day -day work been affected by COVID and recording those things remotely? You know, I actually think that because this podcast came out of COVID, it has provided us a bit of an opportunity to really take those steps back and think about it's it's the podcast is very aspirational for us. Um, and we are novices at podcasting. So I want to just throw out, you know, if there are museum people who have no idea what people are talking about right now, you can still do it. Um, it's uh, so we were like babies uh, when it came to podcasting, but uh, you know, we are, are are moving in a particular direction where these are really important topics that we want to tackle. We want to, we're a largely settler organization. I'm a settler myself. And so there are, we want to take on some of that work in terms of thinking about colonialism, which is again, a huge topic. Uh, we have a 20 minute episode on that. Uh, same with reconciliation. It's a, a way to kind of move our organization to think about those um, tricky topics, but make them accessible for folks who maybe haven't even heard uh, about these terms or these words. Uh, so for us, uh, particularly with the, the episode on, on reconciliation and on Canada Day, which has a more kind of cancel Canada Day tone, um, the, the podcast provided an opportunity for us to really go behind the scenes and tell people why we are thinking about these things. Uh, so for reconciliation, we were able to interview Charlotte Yellowhorn McLeod, who she would hate to be for me to say that she was the leader of this walk for reconciliation, but she, she has spearheaded this. 
um, and it was a really moving conversation, um, but allowed people, this is a, a walk that has been done to honor residential school survivors for over a decade, um, but we were able to kind of go behind the curtain and tell folks, you know, this is why we are walking in a really kind of deep way. Um, similar with Canada Day, you know, Fort Calgary, that's one of our biggest events. Um, it's where we get a lot of funding. Um, so to kind of show a different perspective of Canada Day and say, you know, not everyone loves it. And, and here are some of the reasons why. Uh, so it was really a great opportunity for us, I think, to, to, like I said, take that step back and really think about where we're headed and, and make some of those, those aspirational moves. Well, it's been really great to hear about all your work on the shows and the ways that you've adapted to COVID over the last very difficult year, and also as you've brought your shows together before COVID as well, in the before times, as we sometimes call it. Up next, we have Bob Weaver and Terry McGuire, retired Parks Canada employees who are now part of a volunteer crew traveling around Alberta and BC to restore plaques and monuments. We really enjoyed our conversation with Bob and Terry earlier this fall, and they had lots of stories we weren't able to include in our November podcast episode. So we're pleased to wrap up season two with more of their conversation with Meredith Leary, our conference program lead, sharing some of their favorite locations and plaques they've traveled to, as well as some insight into the plaques evolution over time and the processes they use to restore them. Uh, I think in the early days, in the, in the early 1910s and 20s when the plaque program first started the the plaques of course were all unilingual and in, in English or perhaps in in French but very very ornate and uh, and uh, mounted on on stone cairns and that and then gradually over time we've seen uh, the the monuments uh, that and the plaques themselves change that in the uh, you know probably mid 50s and 60s they went to to more of a utilitarian kind of precast concrete kind of structures where they the, and the plaques became bigger became uh, bilingual and and took on this uh, burgundy uh, shade uh, in the background and and with the the crest uh, the uh, and the the word mark for Canada, there. So you know, and then now we we see the the, the proliferation of these 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 monuments and plaques uh, being mounted on sides of buildings, and now on on uh, metal uh, stands and and whatnot. And and the plaque itself continues to to evolve. And now, the, in many cases, they're they're trilingual. Uh, with uh, the, the native uh, indi indigenous uh, language uh, accompanying them so yeah it's been it's it's interesting as you you go around the, the province uh in the area to to see the evolution on on some of these things and and we've always kind of said and we've we had a little bit of a discussion with alberta motor association that you know this this in itself would could be the the basis of a road trip for somebody who wanted to to just go out and explore the country is is go seek and find these uh, these plaques along the way and of course visit the communities and the and the museums that uh, that are uh, associated with them do you have like a favorite plaque or a favorite like plaque location hmm. but I don't know, Terry, he mentioned the old uh, ornate plaques and they are mm -hmm. quite something to work on there uh, because I guess the features on them are so unique versus the ones that we have now, which are, you know, they're still very attractive and, and stand out nicely, but they don't have all that scroll work and, um, 
And so the castings of some of these old plaques and I, uh, are, are really unique. The, the one that both Terry and I have both worked on and, and we just did it again this summer is at Frog Lake. It's the Northwest Massacre site and um, and that, it's it's a really pretty setting on the um, on the Frog Lake Reserve uh, in northeastern uh, Alberta and uh, easily accessible and the and the interpretive information there is really well done and it's 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 really worth a stop just to read about you know that history of the settlement and um, and and what happened there in terms of um, the massacre of. Uh, of the Hudson or the Northwest Trading Company, I think, was uh, some of the folks that had the camp at that time. And of course, the First Nations people that were living there. Um, it, it, that's, it, it's, it's nice to see that. And it's also nice to see a site that's so well maintained. That site is, uh, they, they care for it very carefully. And, and from what I gather and have read is that it's treated uh, by the local community as a, as a sacred site. And so it's um, very special for them and, and, and uh, very, uh, very interesting in terms of that history. And then there's a couple of northern ones, and Bob probably can talk a little bit about some of the experience and in terms of, of going, going up there and, and attacking some of those plaques. It was kind of interesting because, as Terry said, we're doing both the, the Heritage River plaques, which is a nice blue background, and then the World Heritage sites. And uh, so we were up in Yellowknife and uh, Fort Smith this summer, and we did the World Heritage plaque for Wood Buffalo National Park and um, got it fixed up. And uh, and the, one of the park managers took, and I had given him uh, pictures that we took, and he sent it around to the other managers. And I was quite surprised that uh, we got an email back from one of the parks people down at Fort Chippewan, and they said, "Well, what about our plaque?" And I, I didn't know, didn't know anything about this. And here, when they commemorated or had the World Heritage commemoration for um, Wood Buffalo, because it's such a large area and such a large park, they made a decision to have two plaques. Uh, and there, so there's one at the north side of the park uh, at what's called the Salt Basin, and the and the second plaque is in Fort Chippewan. And so we thought, well, we're not going to get up there. It's, just, it's not a very easy place to get to. You have to fly into, basically. But I, a couple of years prior, we had a plaque shipped down from Fort Chippewan to Fort McMurray, where we we're doing some work. And so I thought, well, if we did it once, we'll do it again. So they actually shipped the plaque down to Edmonton. And we refurbished it in Edmonton and shipped it back up again. And now it's back in place at Fort Chippewan on its monument. And, the, and now the uh, sister plaques are both looking quite nice and should be good for another four or five years. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, speaking about the refurbishment process, can you speak a little bit more about that? Oh, sure. Um, I think I, I touched on it a little bit, but I think it, it, because we've been doing it now on a regular basis over that four or five year um, cycle, uh, in many, many cases, we'll go and uh, the plaque is in generally good condition. We'll find that the the background paint is maybe faded if it's, you know, sun faded, if you want, and the lettering might be tarnished, you know, just oxidized a little bit. So in that case, uh, we would uh, give it a good cleaning just to see exactly what's going on. We mask off the monument itself, so we're not going to, you know, sort of damage anything on the either the concrete or a stone face or whatever the monument's made of. And um, and then we use a, a sanding, light sanding, to brighten up the lettering. So we just uh, 
so you go over it enough just to take the tarnish off and, and brighten it up. Uh, the, all the all the plaques have a, a crest, a Canada crest, and we usually use a um, a power drill with a brass brush on it and just brighten it up as well. So anything that's exposed brass, there's also brass that's exposed around the perimeter of the plaque. So anything which would be a brass uh, finish, we bring it up so it looks new. And then um, we apply a light petroleum grease to the lettering, mask mm -hmm. off anything that we don't want paint on. So we can mask off the crest to mask off the brass surround. And, uh, and then we go ahead and refinish it with spray paint. And we've got the, the paints that we use are mixed. Um, uh, they're, they're, they're custom mixed to match the uh, colors that uh, the original colors of the plaques. So we carry with us uh, the paints for the heritage sites, uh, the, the, the world heritage sites, the heritage rivers. And, um, and once it's painted and dried, uh, we use again a sander and or by hand sanding a combination of both and you can just carefully take and remove the paint from the surface of the lettering and oh. um, clean it again make sure there's no debris or no nothing like sandpaper dust or whatever and then um, remove your masking tapes and use a clear seat sealer and a, a, a lacquer sealer that seals it usually three or four coats of that sealer and uh, the plaque is basically back to new. It, they look basically new. Uh, the only difference that we might find if it's really damaged in terms of background paint or, or maybe uh, you know, somebody scratched it and, and um, damaged the paint, well, then what we would do is uh, we would strip the plaque right down to bare brass. Mm. We use a very strong paint stripper and strip it right to bare brass and then just basically do the same process I explained. Takes maybe... You know, it could go anywhere from a couple of, well, maybe an hour and a half to three hours, depending on the, you know, the condition of the plaque. Yeah, it's been interesting that the, the process has has evolved over time. Originally, the process was was quite, uh, you know, equipment intensive. There used to, we used to haul a, a trailer behind us and they had to have a power generator and a, and mm -hmm. a air compressor and and uh, and whatnot uh, to and then some of these uh, plaques if we had to go to a full strip involved uh, re removal of the paint uh, by uh, sandblasting or or soda blasting and and so you know uh, but now over time there and with uh, uh, changes in technology uh, the, the paint stripper that we found is, is, you know, of course, using the necessary protective equipment uh, is very effective in removing the paint uh, without uh, having to do all this uh, uh, soda blasting or sandblasting. And then uh, certainly uh, the equipment now uh, with all of the battery powered uh, sanders and, and, and drills, we're in a position now to, to do this fairly uh, economically and, and easy. And so now the, the program, we no longer have to, to have this trailer pulled behind. We can, you know, it all fits into two or three tubs of, and can sit in the back of a, a standard SUV vehicle or, or push kind of the shove. I'm sure you could even fit it into your, the back of a, a sedan's uh, uh, trunk. So from that perspective, very much uh, an easier process for, for the uh, removal. Our thanks to Bob Weaver and Terry McGuire for talking with Meredith earlier this fall. 
The AMA would also like to thank all of the contributors to season two of the Museums at the Mic podcast for helping us celebrate our 50th anniversary and give special thanks to Ben Fast, Meredith Leary, and Megan Patterson for leading the wonderful interviews and conversations with all of our guests. And thank you for joining us this season. We hope you've enjoyed having a peek at what goes on behind the scenes of the AMA and how we've put together our 2021 conference series. Don't forget to subscribe, like, and review Museums at the Mic on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can send us comments directly at info at museums.ab.ca or get in touch with at Alberta Museums on social media. The music heard in this episode is Wholesome by Kevin MacLeod and Summer Ambient Piano by Raphael Crux.